now, Harry's sponsors Handbrake Off, a podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Uh, Harry's, they do shaving products, James. I mean, I know you're a young fella. Have you shaved? Did you shave at all? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what did you, what do you imagine me to just have like a very long beard? It's not been that long years since we saw each other in real life. After, uh, you know, I imagine you know sometimes when people end up on on lifeboats after being, you know, sure, uh, and Tom they, Hanks and on cast away. I've just befriended sort of, a volleyball. No, that, it's not quite that. I, but I'm keeping in, you know, all right, Nick. I'm still <laughs> shaving. Don't you worry. Wilson! Anyway, Harry's uh, was founded. I don't know if you know about Harry's. It was founded by Jeff and Andy, uh, two ordinary guys who were sick and tired of overpriced razors. Now, I've got a beard, all right, at the moment. Uh, are you, I mean, are razors overpriced? I'm assuming that you would say that they are. Yeah, I think they are, yeah. All right, well, fair enough. Well, <laughs> Harry's comes in Andy then, because Jeff and Andy knew there was only one way to ensure quality. They bought their own factory. Now, by taking less profit, Harry's offers great quality products for a fair price. Sound good? Sounds great to me. Uh, now, Harry's trial set includes everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. It's got a weighted ergonomic handle. Give, give us an ooh. <laughs> yeah, five precision-engineered blades, rich lathering shave gel and a travel blade cover lovely all the trimmings uh, as a listener uh, to handbrake off you can start shaving with harry's today by claiming your trial set for three pounds 95 support our podcast and get your set delivered to you including a razor handle a five blade cartridge foaming shaving gel and travel blade cover by going to harrys.com forward slash handbrake off right now that's harrys.com forward slash handbrake off that's it james we're done good job the only way to score is of course to play uh, with a handbrake off I'm Ian Stone. This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. I'm joined this week by our regular guests, writers for The Athletic, James McNicholas and Amy Lawrence. Hello, guys. Hello, Ian. How are you doing? Uh, hello. I, how am I? I don't know. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> Very much the same. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and also, we're joined by the former Arsenal right-back. It's uh, Mr Lee Dixon. Hello, Lee. How are you? They sound a bit miserable, them two. Are you, are you all right, Amy? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, right. I'm, I'm, I'm recovering from. I had a, pl- I had a plumbing emergency, which uh, some of you might. Have is that a euphemism? Amy? Yeah. No, it is that, isn't. Is that, it right. was a Pro- real one involving water and uh, implements. Um, that still doesn't help, Amy. But thank oh, you. Oh God. No, seriously. <laughs> we were only talking about Andy Linnigan last week, and uh, there I was a couple of days later invoking the living God of average footballer, excellent plumber himself. Like just hoping upon hope, I get a spark of inspiration when there was a a, a a growing puddle of water coming out from under the kitchen sink. Um, anyway, thanks for YouTube video. I seemed to sort it out, which was remarkable. But kind of contorted underneath the kitchen sink, wrestling with bits of metal, managed to put my back out. So I'm a bit spaced out. 
that's why. Oh dear. Well, I was going to ask. I was going to ask if anyone did anything special for the Easter weekend. <laughs> Just a joke. But we'll leave that now. Uh, we are going to talk a bit of football in part two. Uh, we're going to chat about the players' response to the club, asking them to take a wage cut if they don't qualify for Europe. James, I know you've written a piece about that, and we'll get to that. Uh, first of all, by the way, on this day, not that I like to remind people some of the things that happened on this day for Arsenal. Oh. Uh, we lost three neutral Middlesbrough at home. We're Danny Rose volley happened on this day. Uh, Arsenal lost 3-1 to Spurs in the FA Cup semi-final. And in 1999, in the FA Cup semi-final against Man United, Lee Dixon let Ryan Giggs run past him like he was offering an old person a seat on the train. Uh, <coughs> harsh. Lee, but harsh but accurate. fair. <laughs> I tell you what, though, uh, on that very same day in 1999, Matteo Ganduzi was born. So there you go. Something to be grateful for on that day. Was wow. he? I imagine the defending maybe pushed his mother into labour. Anyway, <laughs> because of all that, <laughs> because of all that, we thought we'd try and keep our spirits up by thinking nice thoughts. So the theme this week is attractive football. Before we get into the main body of the pod, I wanted to know what the most and least attractive games you've ever seen. Amy, we'll start with you. Um, well, least attractive is a tough one because I think we all have a capacity to sort of obliterate those really rubbish games that you go to where nothing particularly memorable happens and you sort of go home thinking there's 90 minutes of my life I won't get back. Um, but I, what's really odd about that, about certain games is games that are just pure, unadulterated anxiety and suffering. And then it, even if you win, you sort of come away just feeling uh, like you've, you've gone 10 rounds with a heavyweight boxer. And one that sprang to mind was the... Um, FA Cup semi-final not so long ago uh, against Wigan, which went to penalties. It was such a such a horrific match. The quality of football was so lacking, um, and it was just like a, a real long, harrowing slog. And then eventually Arsenal won on penalties. And instead of it being sort of happy and celebratory to get in the cup final, it was more of a just pure, um, you know, just about enough relief to keep you, you know. Walk, putting one foot in front of the other to leave a stadium. More recently than that, the um, tail end of the Emery era seems to have kind of all, all weld together into one big kind of frustrating boringness. Uh, I think the quality of football was was dreadful. And there was a game at Vittoria Guimaraes in the Europa League. Oh. I think it was, I think it might have been 1-1 in the end. It was. So there was actually yeah. a goal uh, to savour, but it was very, very awful depressing football that's what I'm offering there yeah James what about you yeah I think uh, the Europa League games sort of have a special quality of boringness to them some of them are in the group stage uh, there was one at home to sporting that was a nil-nil uh, that was absolutely dire. I think it was a couple of years ago. It was actually the game in which Danny Welbeck picked up that really awful ankle injury. Mm. And, the, and in the way that big injuries sometimes can do, it sort of just killed the match stone dead. Um, and I think there's something about those Thursday nights that can lend itself to quite boring games. But in terms of most entertaining, uh, the one that springs to mind for me is 
the home match against Middlesbrough, the 5-3 in the midst of Arsenal's, uh, towards the end actually of their unbeaten run, 49 games. It was just proper end-to-end, brilliant football. Arsenal was so good going forward at the time. And something interesting about it really is that the, the defending wasn't always great. And I think it's sort of interesting. Sometimes the, sometimes the most entertaining 90-minute spectacles that you think of don't always you know, exhibit the art of defending to the greatest extent. So I think there's a bit of a relationship there in some ways. Most entertaining one, got a few, obviously. Um, I think the first of the five twos against Tottenham was uh, was fantastic. But there's a, a, another Arsenal-Tottenham game that I love for its kind of um, electricity value. And that was the first North London derby under Arsene Wenger, where they were a bit naughty in, uh, in getting a goal where I think Patrick Vieira was injured and... Alan Nielsen threw the ball back into play, almost sort of hurled it straight into the penalty area and Andy Sinton scored for Tottenham. And there was uh, this great welling crescendo of uh, uh, of injustice. Um, and then in the last couple of minutes, Tony Adams scored a, a, an absolutely incredible goal. Um, and then Ian Wright danced around um, over at the, the, cor- the corner flag and... Uh, hoiked a ball across the Dennis Bergkamp who scored an absolute beauty and did this fantastic knee slide in the rain it was really dramatic as mm-hmm. Ian Wright put, lifted his t-shirt up with the I love the lads message on his shirt underneath and um, that that was just one of those kind of wild games and I think all those exciting games one of the ingredients you have to have is a bit of a kind of comeback a massive change of direction that kind of lurching emotion from one minute everything's in the doldrums and the next you feel like you're scaling you know space so that, and then the final little shout as well uh, for the three-two with the Carnu hat trick, um, oh. which Ooh. which was really really. <laughs> yep. Uh, I still feel very fortunate to have uh, to have been in that stadium watching that match live, and when when the the goal of goals that Carnu scores uh, uh, when he dug that one out. Um, it was just one of those where you sort of don't know where you are for a moment. You know, it feels like you pop out of your own body and you just, ah, it was, it was fantastic. I am. Um, and I was I, in the press box. So I wasn't supposed to do that, but there you go. Brit, Brit, Amy, you've, I've just changed mine now. heard Amy's. Is <laughs> that allowed? Well, uh, yes, it is allowed, Lee. What have you got? I mean, are these game, well, games you played in or watched? No, well, two things. Firstly, that um, I did my, um, top five Dennis Burkamp goals for NBC some content we're doing for NBC and I had to film myself on my uh, phone talking about Dennis's goals and I put that goal against Tottenham in uh, no I can't remember where it was four or three or something it was in the middle anyway it was in the, it was in there because the touch that from righty's cross was I think I was talk about the touch against Newcastle and whether that was lucky or whether he meant that or all that the one against Tottenham was the best touch I've ever seen where a ball going away from you with a defender in front of you and then next minute he's in, stood in front of the goalkeeper and puts it in the net. And I was like, I, I had to watch it three or four times to think how good that touch was. So that that uh, that goal, I, that game was just brilliant to be involved in. And again, I had to do a NBC classic match thing last week and we did that game and it brought up the memory of... Zola came on in the second half. He was on the bench for some for some reason. Came on in the second half when it was two nil, and uh, he was the nicest man you'd ever, and still is, nicest man you'd ever want to meet in football. And when he came on, 
he kind of he was embarrassed that he was 2-0 up and he came on and he played on the left-hand side against me and he went, he knew, we knew each other obviously and he looked at me and he went, I'm sorry Lee and he apologised for being 2-0 <laughs> up and I went, I went, well, why are you apologising? He goes, oh you know, because I like you and you you know and I was like, well, I've got news for you mate, I'm just going to kick lumps out of you for the next, you know, because we were we were starting to get on top, it was still 2-0 and we we scored, made it 2-1 and I ran back to the halfway line and I went pa ran past him and I said to him, I told you this game wasn't over, carried on, obviously went to 2-all and then we're running back to the halfway line again and I went, Gianfranco, and he looked at me and he went, no, you're not going to win, are you? This is my obviously Italian accent. And uh, when it got to 3-2, I just ran past him. And as I ran past him with a, 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 a smile on, on the sides of my lips, I just sort of went, I'm Franco, and he turned. And I went, I'm sorry. <laughs> and he went, he went, I could, well, he called me a bastardo. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to our good pals at beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight, yes, eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash athletic and pay the postage of £4.95. And as if that wasn't enough, as a listener of the Athletic Podcast, you'll get two extra free beers. So that's 10 free beers for those slow at maths. Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They travel the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest craft breweries planet Earth has to offer. No surprise then, they are the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 deliver a case with a different theme. Themes have included Germany, Korea, Belgium, South Africa, California, New Zealand and many more. But they haven't forgotten their roots. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave at any time. The power is in your hands. Your case will also include the award-winning craft beer magazine, Ferment, and a beery snack is thrown in just to top it all off. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash athletic to get your free case. And don't forget, right now, the athletic listeners get two extra free beers. I mean, the reason we're asking about attractive football particularly um, is because we were sort of wondering about what people thought about whether Arsenal should play attractive football. Amy, you were talking about it being Arsenal's DNA now. Uh, it wasn't always the case. As we well know, Arsenal used to be boring, boring Arsenal. Uh, Amy, I'll start with you. This this Arsenal DNA thing, do you think it really means anything or or is it just the fact that Arsene Wenger was such a dominant figure for the last 20 years that he imprinted that on us? Well, I think it's a really, really interesting thing and it affects so much more than what you think about the team just as an individual fan and how much you enjoy your football. I think that basically Arsenal went through this radical transformation of the entire football club, which coincided with the time of first Dennis Bergkamp and then uh, uh, Arsene Wenger arriving and then you know, the whole influx of uh, Patrick Vieira, Thierry Henry, Robert Pires, you know, Mark Overmars, the whole, this whole idea that Arsenal um, 
evolved away from a much more functional, more traditionally English style of football. Uh, it was a much more conventional type of a club. It always had that history of doing things with a touch of class and the marble halls and what used to be called the Bank of England club. There was this idea of Arsenal represented something with a bit of style, but that wasn't necessarily an on-the-pitch style. But when Arsenal started to change in that kind of late 90s, early um, 2000s, sort of first half, if you like, of the of the Wenger era, which was so successful, that was at a time when the globalisation of football was really uh, mushrooming fast. And... What One of the things I think that Arsenal was particularly proud of is that he felt that the way Arsenal were perceived across the world changed in that time. So, for example, I, don't, I mean, this is a completely unscientific thing, but if you try and think about all the global fan base of Arsenal, a lot of them are probably of a similar-ish age where they started to get into football and started to choose their favourite teams from foreign countries and... Uh, and so on, around that time of Arsenal playing electric football and having some of the most aesthetically creative players in the world. Um, I don't know whether that's still the case. I think if you were to kind of go and talk to a bunch of sort of 15 to 25-year-olds who love their football, anywhere from Nigeria to Vietnam to New Zealand to Finland whether that many of those that generation nowadays would plump for Arsenal, I think probably quite probably a, a massively reduced number. But Arsenal's sort of image worldwide is really hooked on this idea of of the kind of Wenger, Wenger ball that that everybody used to love. Um, so I think it's interesting concept. I mean, even when they came to replace Arsene, it was something in the minds of the decision makers, which is how do we move on from this period and this manager who has had this gargantuan impact and this long, long era, how do we somehow change from that because it needed freshening up and yet also somehow retain this idea of what they perceive to be Arsenal football, which of course is not what a lot of us grew up with, but what Arsenal became. And and I still think it's important to them. Doing it, delivering it is really hard. But I think that in their heart of hearts, people think Arsenal should be aspiring to play pretty football. Lee, can I ask you, after the Everton game, when we won 4-0 and won the title in 98, I saw, I've, I've seen um, uh, a film of Steve Bold. He's on the treatment table after. He's getting a massage. And he's talking about how we won that game and how we won the title. And he said, we did it the right way. Now, what... Uh, I mean, you would have talked about the way that you played with with Steve and with the rest of the, the team before then and the way you played that day. Do you think there is a right way? Well, let, let me try and simplify it in, in, in my very um, straightforward way of looking at football. If you, It's all about winning. Ultimately, that is it. And I can hear everybody sitting there going, "Well, no, because we'd like, yeah. If you if you if you get a choice between winning and playing in a certain way, and then winning and playing in a brilliant way, obviously the entertaining way you'd pick that. But that's not how football is. You don't get those choices. You can try and aim to be a progressive playing um, group of players that play attractive football and win, and everybody 
in this modern game is trying to, or not everybody, but a lot of them are trying to do that and play in a certain way. Fantastic. I love it because it's great to watch and we get all these exciting games and anything. If you strip it back to saying you, none of those teams that, that we're watching and enjoying are ever going to win anything ever again and you made a factual thing of it, then you would change it overnight. So you, you, we're all... We all want our cake and eat it, and we all want to play the 98 way and all high five with Steve Bold on the training on the um, treatment table. Going, didn't we have a lovely game today? But that was based around a very disciplined way of playing that was added to by the brilliant Arsene Wenger, who created a style on top of discipline that was almost like the perfect storm. Now. That takes years and years and years to do that, and teams like Pep's team and 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 the way that he goes about. If he never wins another game, he will change the way he plays. So it it, it it's as black and white as that. If you're asking me what type of football I'd like to play, I would. I enjoyed my Arsene Wenger football more than any other football I ever played. Would I have would I have had that if I hadn't had George Graham before? And no, and if you ask the fans, do you want to play that type of football? Yeah, of course you do. But if you, if because they've had success, if you took away that success and said, well, "How do you like your football now?" You go, "I sort of want to win a trophy." So it it's it all it, it it would go down to black and white with me and say, "Which would you like to play?" And I'll say, "Winning football, number one." James, uh, I, I mean. Th- what Lee says is, uh, we understand it's completely fundamentally true that uh, that in the end fans want to see their teams win uh, matches more than anything. But, you know, a team like, say, um, Diego Simeone's Atletico Madrid, no one can say they're particularly attra- attractive, but they are very effective and their fans seem to love it. That's very true and it's interesting. I think when Arsene left the club in 2018, a lot of fans, I remember at the time, sort of anecdotally saying, well, we're ready for something really different now. You know, we've been down this path of almost this experiment in aesthetics it became at times. And, you know, maybe it'd be good to see a manager like Simeone or even earlier this season, I remember you, Ian, touting Jose Mourinho. Yeah. Uh, And I don't bring that up, you know, in any sort of way to be... He never said that. I I did. I must have missed that. I did, yeah. He did. Maybe you weren't there, Lee, but, you know, I sort of get it because it's like a bit of an antidote, the idea that by going in the other direction, we might somehow, you know, dramatically improve or experience success. But one thing that stuck out to me about the Unai Emery reign, for example, is that the football was so bad, and now granted the results weren't great either, that I think even fans who thought, I'm ready for something different, I'm ready for a different style, just sort of couldn't Not ready for that different. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But I do sort of think there is something in that, that in some way, after 20 years of Arsene Wenger, I think divorcing yourself from some of those ideals is, is difficult at this point. Well, can I just, by the way, say I, what I was ready for was to start winning again. It's what yeah. Lee was talking about. I was ready. To, I was happy to grind out 1-0 results and win games because what Arsenal played under Unai Emery was essentially a facsimile of the attractive football that Arsene Wenger brought us. I thought it was it was a pale imitation and it was it was rubbish to watch for the mm. last year. There were, I mean, there were maybe two games in that whole era where, you know, the Tottenham at home... I can't really think of many others, actually one game where we were any good. So I'm with Lee and I think I'm with most uh, with most football fans. You want to see uh, winning football. The other thing to say, Amy, about that period under George Graham, the 1-0 to the Arsenal, if you like, 
I don't think Arsenal were unattractive. I mean, I'm assuming you'd agree with that. We had Paul Davis, we had David Rokar, so we had some really excellent players. I totally agree with you. And also, just going back to um, to what Lee was saying about, you know, uh, of course you don't have a choice about, you know, which way would you like to do it. And But I, when I look back on uh, watching the vast majority, right towards the very end, it got a little bit stale, but the vast majority of George Graham's era of football or Arsene's uh, beginning era of football, which were both successful. Uh, I don't really say that I enjoyed one more than the other. I enjoyed both equally, but just differently. I I adored that period under George Graham of, of winning things. Um, it wasn't necessary. It wasn't, they were an underrated, they were underrated teams in terms of their qualities, but also they played a really fantastically sort of dynamic and it, it was exciting football. It wasn't boring. It was nonsense that that was boring. Although, if you listen back to the videotape of that great game in 89, Lee, um, mm. one of the game. first things you can hear after the Arsenal fans somehow managed to make a coherent sound and go, champions, 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 is boring, boring Arsenal. Although, of course, that was kind of said ironically because... Yeah, we didn't find it boring at all, really. But the rest of the... I, I imagine watching from the outside, it wasn't... I think most neutral fans, if we care about neutral fans, would rather watch Arsene Wenger, vintage Arsenal, than George Graham, Arsenal. But, um, Ian, Ian, aren't we we always governed with our present feelings about about what's happened in the past, about our history? It's all based on what's happened in the past. Because, like you said, if you said, oh, you know, I wanted winning football back, bring Jose, and Jose came in and we won the league first year, everyone would be brilliant, yeah. And then the following year, it went on the the decline and everybody started to see um, Jose Mourinho-type Football, then you you'd be you'd be going. Oh, get rid of him again because we've we've had it. You always want you always want to go back to the days that you had, and if you haven't had any of those days, you'll put up with anything in order to get them. Yeah, I think that's true. I would have been happy if 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 the second year after winning the title it had all gone wrong. I'd have been Jose out the first moment yeah. I had the chance. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I'm a football fan. I'm fickle like that. In the end. I want to win. I remember coming back here after losing 3-2 at home. I can't remember which game. And my missus said to me, well, at least you saw a lot of goals. And the withering (laughs) look she got from me and my son. I mean, she won't forget that for quite some time, I must say. Because it isn't about entertainment. I mean, what other sport, I can open this to everyone, what other sport was if we were playing... I don't know, Barcelona, for example, and you heard Lionel Messi's not playing, you'd think, good. What other, what other entertainment would you go that one of the best players ever to play the game? He's not playing. Well, I'm happy about that. Hmm. I mean, Ian, you, you say that as a football fan and I, and I completely agree. But do you think that ticket pricing is a factor in this? I mean, you guys would have to tell me. I don't know what it costs to go to Arsenal in the, in the George Graham era. But given that it's so expensive now and that like they are, it's the priciest ticket in the league or whatever it is. Do you think that people expect a certain degree of entertainment for that money? James, I think what you're saying, and guys, come in on this. I think I think a lot of people who go to football now are customers rather than fans. And we would sit there going, please entertain us, rather than just do anything you can to win the game. I mean, what do you think about that? That change in attitude? I think you I think I think uh James has got a point. I think you and, and you as well, in, in in as much as the actual client has changed and so there is a there is an entertainment theatre type 
feel about going to the game and you know there's a lot there's a lot of that you see that in the corporate side of the game the way that's that's changed and that's got bigger and that's got more important and the guy you know the people who go on these you know in the corporate boxes and not necessarily the guys who you know or the guys and the girls who who normally going to football matches supporters wise so you you do get a different clientele and they want to go and see they want to go and see the team win but if they saw a really entertaining um game and had a few glasses of chardonnay and yeah we've had a great day out i mean how how do you watch a football match like that it's just insane to me i just i couldn't bear it and i want to go and see my team win and i want to see and do you know amy will hopefully back me up and you on this one there was a certain satisfaction in a one nil to an arsenal from a from a point of view is you've gone away from home you've nicked three points yeah and you've absolutely bored the home fans to death <laughs> and smothered them out and made sure they've, they've not been able to get out their own half. And, and, and you just think, oh, thanks very much. Oh, there they go, those lot from North London. There is a relationship between how much you have to pay for your ticket and how much you feel that you should be getting out of it, which obviously becomes impacted by whether or not something is entertaining as well as, well as the result. I mean, you asked James how much it used to be um, when I was first going uh, in the in the North Bank on the terrace, I vaguely remember spending about ninety quid on a season ticket. So um, it worked out. <laughs> it worked out about a few quid a game, and what sure. that meant is that you know it was pocket money, um, yeah. and it, it meant that when you turned up, you didn't have a demand to be entertained you didn't have a demand for a result because you you know it was just how you chose to spend a few quid you could have spent that a few quid on a bunch of other stuff but it wasn't going to change your weekend or change your life in terms of the financial implications so I think it allowed people to everybody cared like hell but it allowed you to have a bit more of a laugh there was more humor a lot more gallows humor even when things weren't going well if a game was crap and went badly people would be making dark jokes uh, rather, you know, this is not to say that there were never um, scapegoats within the team and and fans didn't turn and the atmosphere wouldn't get a little bit um, unkind, but it was a lot less than nowadays. You just didn't feel, people felt like they were kind of all in it together. Um, and it, I think it made it a lot more uh, of a, a sense that, you, was, you know, you, you, were, you were paying to go to football, but you did it because you loved it and you were part of the gang rather than I'm coming here and I expect something for my money. Lee, Lee, when you're playing in a game, I mean, I know you said you preferred playing the Arsene Wenger way, mm. but just it was more entertaining. But how much can you really appreciate when you're on the pitch? I mean, in the end, it's, it's the job, isn't it? Footballers don't look like they're enjoying it that much most of the time because it's a high-pressure situation. Yeah, you don't, I've said this before. You don't... I, I can... I can count on one hand how many games I enjoyed and I played a lot. You know, and when I say that, I mean actually during the game, you're going, oh, this is fun. What a, what a great thing I'm doing right now. <laughs> if you start thinking that, then all of a sudden Ryan Giggs runs off you and scores yeah. in the semi final. I think that's yeah. what I was thinking then. Oh, we might win this and we might. As soon as you take your mind off it, and, and so. I was trying to. I was talking to this lad, going, "Oh, you must have loved playing football." I said, "Oh, I love the process." And he went, "What does that mean?" And I said, "Well, you know, the actual playing of it 
you're not with your mates on the on the on the Sunday pitch chipping balls and playing Wembley with no nets in. You're actually in a very stressful, high um, high agitated state because yeah. you've got somebody who's trying to trying to make you look stupid. And uh, and if you don't keep your eye on the ball, and so th- there are times when you're four nil up and there's twenty minutes to go and you know you've won the game and you know that the wing you've got. He's trying to get over to the other side because he's had enough of you. That you go, do you know what? I quite enjoy this, but very, very rarely you, are you that far ahead in a game where you can take your foot off and enjoy it. So you, you are, you get. There's, there's a sense of achievement as soon as the final whistle goes, and you go, oh, I really enjoyed that. When you've got three points, I've never ever enjoyed a game that I've lost. Um, you know, and played thought I've played really well. And the England managers up in the stand. I've had a really good game. We lost one nil. I never enjoyed that. What's the point of that? The whole point to me was to win, and win at all costs. You'd wonder with the new customers that we have, Amy, and I'm calling them customers, whether that will still be the case in say 20 years' time. I do wonder about you know. I'm I'm just fascinated by obviously football's on pause at the moment and. For most people, that just means life's that bit more boring or the structure's gone or, you know, we've got lots of other things to think about. But I, I within the club, and obviously there's been discussions this week about um, pay cuts and, you know, it's a big, big, big organisation, this football club. It employs a lot of people, you know, somewhere between 700 and 800 people in lots of different departments. Um, and the, the, you know, balancing of the books with no income from football, um with no income from matches is a real, it's going to make a lot of people sit and have some pretty deep uh, analysis about, about what, what, what happens to the club moving forward and what happens indeed to the game moving forward. And I just think it's going to be, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking about Mikel Arteta, you know, day to day being the manager of a club that's, this is, you know, he's not long a manager, is it? How many games has he actually managed? And now he can't do anything. He's in that nascent period of being a manager and, you know, having to adapt to this strange reality of having uh, electronic communication with his players, not getting the collective together at all. You know, how much can he achieve, even if they're just getting players to tick over? Like the idea of people improving at the moment is, or, or a game plan improving seems, I don't know how, how feasible that is on any level. Um, but he's still working on trying to create what he'd like his Arsenal team to look like. And I think the fans want him to try and uh, take the the positives that he showed early on and really kind of evolve that into something more competitive, uh, more exciting. I, I don't know what we're going to see from Arsenal when things get back. We don't even know what players are going to be around or not. It's It's a really strange thing to imagine. The thing is now with the, mod, with the the modern game is that these plans and these um, these thoughts and ideas that he's got that any manager's got, but that you mentioned, Amy, that the, these managers don't get the time to be able to implement them like they did when George was manager. And there's a bit of there's a bit of oh, you know, let's give him a bit of time. That doesn't. So the the pressure that they're under in order to get their message over, get their and he's done. That's why Arteta I think's done a really really good job with. The way he's come in, very pep-like in his way. I'm sure he's his own person, but he's 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 already getting a mentality over to the players, which is a, a really good thing. Now the next thing is obviously 
create a team and get some signings in that he wants to to build a team and get the, the ones out he doesn't want and then and that's going to take a bit of time and the thing is that's running out all of the time is the patience from the fans so the and you so you're fighting that that thin line all the time about when it's going to snap what's the what's the thing that how many results does it take to go actually we've lost three and drawn one in the last four games and the fans start going well I'm not seeing you know that's so in, so impatient these days I, we'll see what Arteta does we can we can certainly take a look at that in the next few weeks what I would say is if Arsene, if um, Jose Mourinho was our manager now they'd be training in a park <laughs> so um, <laughs> there'd be a bit more co- connection there but um, yeah. Lee we'll let you go at this point been lovely uh, to talk to you as always see you next week cheers Lee might have see a special you. guest with me next week Oh, we're excited. I like a teaser. Very, very nice. Just, uh, just add the text confirmation. Okay, but we won't say who it is just yet, but we do have a special guest. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you, Lee. See you later. James, you had some responses on Twitter, did you not, when you asked about the most and least attractive matches that people have ever seen? Yeah, we did. I mean, David Ruin, who's at DRuin7 on Twitter, cited the 1-0 at Real Madrid as the most entertaining game. Uh, And they said it was topped off by the most amazing time-wasting by Reyes when he got fouled, rolled off the pitch and then rolled back onto the pitch. Classic, classic. Sensational stuff from from (laughs) Jose Gorbachev. And uh, yeah, uh, what's interesting is in the boring games, people still cited a few wins I think being cold was quite a big factor. Nick Davis said Arsenal versus QPR, October 2012. We won 1-0 with a late offside Arteta winner. Not sure I'd stood up for anything before in the game. Uh, coldest I've ever been at a football match. Uh, Chris, who's wearing Guna, said Arsenal won Bolton nil. Uh, 84 minutes of Samir Nasri passing from side to side until Bentner won it late. Absolutely freezing flurries <laughs> of snow. Um, Charles Watts uh, said, most boring or low quality. I don't remember this one, but you might. All I'll always remember Sheffield Wednesday in 93. Won 1-0, a righty last-minute winner. Oh, Horrendous God, yes. game, though, in a half-empty Highbury. Does that ring any bells, Amy? Yep, yep. yep there was some... Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Andrew Allen uh, said, I took my friend's grandfather to a nil-nil draw with Blackburn in the FA Cup. I've never been so bored in my life. And that was actually the game where afterwards Fabregas uh, asked Mark Hughes, did you really play for Barcelona? <laughs> such, a, such a fantastic episode, that. I know. I love yeah. the idea of young Cesc Fabregas going up and saying that. And, and of course, lots of people had a go, you know, in the, in the media had a go at Fabregas about that as if it was somehow disrespectful. But... Uh, that was, was fantastic. Just one other thing that I forgot like when we were talking about not boring games but exciting ones. I was going to mention the five-one against Inter. Oh yeah, um, which is a game I really, really loved. Uh, and there's one specific thing I learned about that game that that stuck in my mind. Um, Thierry Henry scores a quite spectacular Thierry Henry solo goal in that game where he goes from one end of the pitch to the other in something like six touches and eight seconds or whatever it is. Uh, it's absolutely um, sublime and sort of searing run. But just the seconds before he goes on the run for that uh, that goal, um, Inter had a, well, I'll use the term loosely, a, a penalty ap- appeal. Marco Materazzi, oh, he of the Zidane headbutt incident. So, you know, a, gu- a guy with a bit of uh, a, a penchant for maybe 
winding people up. Um, dived around looking for a penalty and didn't get it and was was rolling around on the ground for the duration of the Henri break. Uh, and when the goal went, and, and Jens Lehmann was basically standing over him, obviously, <laughs> um, letting him know that he wasn't very appreciative of this penalty appeal. And uh, and when the goal went in, <laughs> Jens obviously said to him, what do you think you're doing down there? Look, we've scored now, you idiot. Kind of just went for him. And the idea of Jens Lehmann standing over Marco Materazzi <laughs> as he feigns injury at one end of the pitch while Thierry Henry scores at the other is a, a pleasing image. <laughs> Uh, thank you, everyone who uh, who wrote in. By the way, we do appreciate it, and we'll uh, we'll set you some more little questions uh, for next week for our special guest. Uh, by the way, I'm sure you might have one or two when you find out who he is. Um, now, I want to talk about uh, the players' response to the club asking them to take a wage cut. I know James, you're involved in a piece. Amy, you've also written about this. Uh, James, I'll start with you. Yes. Yeah, so the club have asked uh, the players to take a cut for about 12 months. Uh, in fact, exactly 12 months, I think it's 12 and a half percent. It would be off their total remuneration. Uh, and the idea is that this would apply to next season, assuming next season goes ahead as planned, and that if Arsenal qualify for the Champions League, they actually wouldn't receive a cut. They would retain that 12.5%. If they qualify for the Europa League, uh, the cut reduces a little bit. And if they don't make Europe, it remains as a 12.5% cut on their salaries. Uh, the players' position, well, to be honest, is, is divided. I think there are yeah. certain players who um, were, were happy to go with that, others less so. I think collectively, it seems that they feel that they would prefer a deferral rather than a cut. And I think they're looking for the club to make certain assurances about uh, jobs for other people within the company and you know how that money will be applied and whether or not that in that will be met or uh, matched in any way by by the ownership so it's a, a very complex one and one that's sort of it's quite tricky because you know initially you read this the headline and it's Arsenal players refuse wage cut and it doesn't read great but I think actually if they're holding uh, the ownership to account before they make that commitment. I don't think that's necessarily a, a bad thing. I mean, there was also uh, the point, Amy, about the players. What if, what if the players leave? If they defer their wages and then they leave, do they still get paid? And, have, have, and they have to agree these things. And it can't, it can't be a cover-all thing because people are on different money and people might want different things. Well, that's the, that's the biggest issue. And I mean, I can see why from the club's point of view, they're trying to get some sort of blanket policy. But it's probably a little bit unfair of them to be expecting the players to have a unified response to something like this. And perhaps imagining that they might just sort it out amongst themselves without going to the, their uh, advisors and their um, agents and anybody who gives, deals with their finances is kind of naive as well, because there's vested interests all over the place. And, how, you know, what, what they get paid is related to what cuts agents take out of player wages sometimes. So it's um, it's not really as simple as the club kind of putting an, a, le a letter out via Hector Bellerin, who as a PFA rep is sort of mediating or looking after the situation on behalf of the players and set, expecting him to kind of have a ring around and say, you know, yes or no. Uh, and also a lot of these kids are quite young. Um, asking someone, um, you know, some of the younger players are not on... The, the sort of mega wages of uh, some of the more well-paid players. 
and some of them will you know take martinelli for example he's you know living in a different country there's a whole lot of stuff in to try and process i think saka is on very little money isn't he yeah and and you can't really expect them to be taking the same kind of decisions as those who are earning hundreds of thousands per week i think in principle um and it's not just a football matter i think this is a matter across the world in sort of any industry where people you know do get quite well paid and they can't work at the moment it's probably not unreasonable to expect people to tighten their belts a bit i think it would be appreciated if anybody be they a footballer or be they uh, a business person or whatever um if they can afford to um and they're taking a massive wage and not really doing anything for that wage it's no bad thing if some of that money gets redirected to those who are going to need it and whether that's people within the club who are on a you know a, a low wage uh, I don't know, in the box office or um, cleaning or, you know, the other jobs that are, are, are there are many people doing within the club or whether that's, um, I mean, the other thing I think is significant is that there are some high earning executives there. And it's quite, you can imagine that it doesn't go down that well if you get a letter saying, we'd like you to take these cuts for a year. Maybe one of the paragraphs in that letter should be, as an example, we are. We are, yeah. Mm. Yeah. But uh, well, I don't think that was part of the correspondence. So it probably doesn't make it any easier to reach an agreement with that kind of situation. I mean, I mean, that's a fair point, James. The, we talked about this last week and and it's worth repeating. You know, Stan Kroenke is married to the Walmart billionaires and is a billionaire in his own right. Where's his pay cut? Absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm not sure he's taking a, a salary in the conventional sense, but certainly he's got the pockets deep enough to to bail Arsenal out of, of trouble at the moment. And, you know, I, I don't think it will surprise anybody if I say I'm, I'm not anticipating him doing that. And I suspect on the players' side, there's probably a bit of... Uh, resentment? Resentment about that. I think, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm projecting that. That's not something I'm saying from a, a position of knowledge. But you would you would assume so. You know, you want the boss to to make those take those steps first, don't you, in any line of work? Uh, can I just jump in here? On, Sorry, Amy. there's um, uh, 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 angry of N5 on Twitter. I saw this tweet, I think yesterday, uh, who uh, has been going a long time, um, put this very handy um, graph together. Uh, and he says, seen a few people questioning what Arsenal's multi-billionaire owner might do about injecting some cash in these troubled times. I think I can help. And uh, you can check it out if you look for him on Twitter. But this is his, uh, his um, graph. Uh, the question, has Stan Kroenke ever put any of his own money into Arsenal? Oh, yeah. No, go into the next bit. Will Stan Kroenke put any of his own money into Arsenal now? No, go into the next bit. Will Stan Kroenke ever put any of his own money into Arsenal? No. Has Stan Kroenke ever taken any money out of Arsenal? Yes. Moving on to the next part of the, the equation. Given half a chance, would he take money out again? Yes. Are you absolutely 100% sure about all of this? <laughs> yes. Thank you. That's all right. Yeah. Yeah, Which kind of sums it up. Yeah, it does. I mean, because aren't aren't the people who own clubs meant to be custodians of that club? And surely, being a custodian of a place where seven hundred people work mm. is that you look after those people. Surely, and it shouldn't really be about the players at all. Sure, the players should voluntarily give up some of their wages because they do earn enormous amounts of money. And if you can help out, but the ownership are but worth way more than all the players but it's collectively. Two different issues. The ownership are investors. It's really, really simple. You know, Arsenal's wage bill has been problematic for some time, even preceding this crisis. Uh, and, and there is a slight sense in which this is 
an opportunity for Arsenal to kind of control that problem. But the players probably think, well, this is not a problem of our making. Uh, therefore, why are we kind of paying for it? I mean, I suspect they will ultimately give something back. I'm, I'm sure that, you know, we know the great lengths that players do go to privately and publicly for charity work and other good causes. I'm sure it will happen, but I think it will be on their terms. And I think I think they're entitled to do that, to be honest. I think the only other thing that complicates matters is that, you know, nobody knows how long this pause is going on for. Nobody knows when football will start again or how football is going to start again. Nobody knows if when it does restart, it's going to be with crowds, without crowds. Nobody knows the situation fully about the obligations or otherwise of the TV companies paying up their part of the contract. Nobody knows whether income is going to be generated by tickets or not. At the moment, Arsenal are sitting on um, some money from season ticket holders who have paid for some home games they will possibly never attend. Will they have to reimburse that money? Might some fans waive it in the current situation if they can afford to? Might some fans say, keep it and we'll use it towards a credit for the next available season ticket whenever that happens? There's so much uncertainty that even to have a situation where there's a proposal that says... It's 12.5% if you don't qualify for the Champions League for a year, or it's this amount under other conditions. It still feels quite hard to look at it that way because nobody really knows what's going on. And I have a bit of extra sympathy for everybody involved in these negotiations because it's an inexact negotiation. Uh, Let's have a song before we go. We've been talking about Arsenal playing beautiful, attractive football. Uh, James? I've got uh, That's Entertainment by The Jam. Do you know what? I'm I'm proud of you, James. James wins. James, you know what? I thought I, it was yes. it was low hanging fruit. I thought everyone's going to have that surely. But listen, <laughs> in the circumstances, I'll absolutely take it. That sounds like a wonderful way uh, to end the show. Uh, my thanks to uh, James McNicholas and Amy Lawrence and also Lee Dixon. Uh, we have a special guest next week. We'll tease you with that through the uh, the week. Uh, thanks also to Tayo uh, as well for looking after us and doing pressing all the knobs and buttons. Uh, this has been the Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletics. See you next week. Mm-hmm.